This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It probably wasn't the first country you would think of being susceptible when speaking about the global financial crisis, but Iceland was one of the textbook examples of taking on too much risk. At the time of the crisis, the three biggest banks in that country had assets that were 14 times the national economic output of the country, and foreign ownership of that debt was so significant that if investors had pulled out, it would have significantly devalued Iceland's currency, the krona. Now Iceland has recovered and is achieving growth rates in the 7% rate zone, even bigger than China. But like many European countries, the concern of another failure is in the backs of the minds of many. With more on this story of Iceland and the economic crisis, uh, we are joined here in studio by Philip Nichols, who is a professor of social responsibility in business and professor of legal studies in business here at the Wharton School. And also joining us on the phone is Thorvador Gilvashan, who's a professor of economics at the University of Iceland. Phil, great seeing you. Always good to see you, Dan. Thor, great to have you with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So uh, from your perspective, take us into that period of time and what was going on in Iceland uh, in and around 2006, 2007, that kind of led up to this this massive crisis in the country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what had happened was that um, uh, Parliament had decided to um, privatize uh, the commercial banks. And this was after the privatization of banks, even in Eastern Europe, you know, was uh, complete. And uh, the privatization was botched in that uh, the government had no interest in attracting uh, uh, foreign uh, bankers with experience, but rather uh, handed the banks on a silver plate, you know, to uh, uh, local cronies, uh, whom it took only a few short years to drive the banks um, uh, into the ground. And this is why the Icelandic banks collapsed. It had very little to do with the Lehman Brothers or anything happening in the outside world. That was just sort of a trigger that lit the fire, but uh, uh, the banking system in Iceland would have exploded anyway. What happened was that the local bankers, uh, inexperienced as they were, uh, they went on a borrowing spree around the world, you know. They kicked up their heels like cows in spring, uh, as if there was no tomorrow. <laughs> And as if there was no financial supervision in Iceland, which was pretty uh, uh, close to being the case. And uh, so in the fall of 2008, uh, the banks, uh, all three of them, uh, comprising more than 90% of the Icelandic financial system, uh, uh, they collapsed uh, uh, like a house of cards, um, leaving it for the uh, government to uh, call in the IMF for rescue, uh, uh, and the IMF uh, responded to the call. So the state of the banking industry in Iceland right now is what? Uh, basically, the, uh, the three banks were uh, sort of resurrected uh, uh, after a major cleanup operation orchestrated by the uh, IMF. This meant that uh, uh, foreign creditors were uh, 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 left without being uh, paid to the tune of uh, uh, something like four times Iceland's GDP. And when you run away from private debts, you know, equivalent to four times your GDP, you know, uh, uh, that makes it that much easier to uh, make an economic recovery. And this is what Iceland has done. Uh, uh, Our national economic output, or rather the purchasing power of it, uh, uh, was restored in 2016, you know, nine years after the crash. 
and this nine-year uh, period that it takes to recover is pretty much uh, an average figure. If you look at financial crises, you know, for hundreds of years back in history. So Iceland was very much a textbook case uh, in that regard. And now the going uh, seems pretty good, but there are some uh, worrying clouds on the horizon, including uh, uh, wage negotiations that are coming up in which um, uh, wage earners, uh, you know, want uh, a correction for uh, the injustices that they were subjected to uh, uh, during and after the crash. So uh, we are going through a rather uncertain period now. Many people worry that inflation will be back and that the currency will uh, depreciate again and so on. Uh, we'll know more about that, uh, you know, a year from now. Phil? Um, that was a, a outstanding summary. The, there's some other reasons that Iceland is a, a kind of a textbook or poster child for understanding the economic crisis, and that is some of the insights we got through the Panama Papers and through the investigations of the um, the criminal investigations into the uh, uh, aforementioned... Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Right. You see, uh, when a country uh, uh, experiences what is by many uh, measures the... Uh, the, uh, the greatest financial shock uh, recorded in history, um, uh, then what you need is not only an economic recovery, which has been pretty successful, uh, uh, things in large part to the IMF, but you also need sort of uh, judicial accounting uh, and the political cleanup. And uh, there we have a mixed picture. It is true that 39 bankers uh, have been uh, uh, awarded prison sentences by the Supreme Court of Iceland uh, uh, to the tune of two and a half years on average, meaning that the number of man years in prison uh, uh, handed out by the Supreme Court thus far is uh, close to 100. And uh, it so happens that I know the uh, U.S. figure, it happens to be 39 also, <laughs> except uh, the American population is a thousand times larger than uh, that of Iceland. So some people think that is uh, a good and healthy sign. Certainly there were much fewer prosecutions for uh, financial wrongdoing uh, on either side of the Atlantic, so Iceland is pretty unique there. But uh, uh, the shadow side of that is that uh, some people are beginning to fear that uh, small fry were basically sentenced to prison where some of the big fish uh, were allowed to get away, raising very sensitive questions about uh, equality uh, before the law and so on. But this, again, is something that uh, we will know more about when the Supreme Court hands out its last sentences uh, during 2019. But then there's a political aspect. You see, basically... Uh, uh, one way of describing what happened uh, to Iceland was that the politicians and the bankers were in bed together big time, and it was basically under the weight of uh, the, uh, this corrupt uh, arrangement that, uh, that Iceland uh, collapsed. And people took to the streets, you know, banging their pots and pans, uh, demanding yeah. uh, reforms and demanding corrections and so on. And uh, the politicians were up against the wall, uh, humbled. Uh, they were visibly shaken and afraid. And uh, they promised to make amends. They, uh, for example, resolved uh, unanimously in the parliament that uh, criticism of Iceland's political culture needed to be taken seriously. But then what happened was that the IMF program was so successful, it worked its wonders uh, more quickly than even the IMF uh, dared uh, hope uh, in the beginning. So the politicians started to think, well, maybe uh, there is less of a need for us to clean up our act than we thought 
So they basically reversed it to their, uh, their old tricks. Uh, yeah. a, a, a serious cleanup did not take place. And this exploded in full force in 2016, mm. when it turned out that uh, Iceland had no fewer than 600 names uh, in the Panama Papers. And uh, just for comparison, you know, I, I believe the, name, the names of Ukrainians were, you know, uh, uh, 20 or something. Uh, so Iceland had by far the most uh, names uh, uh, in the Panama Papers uh, per capita of any country. And not only that, there were five cabinet ministers in all of Europe whose names emerged from the Panama Papers. And of those five, three were from Iceland. And one of them is still finance minister. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and this is a clear sign that the political and judicial uh, aspect of the recovery was less ambitious and less successful than uh, uh, the economic uh, recovery uh, appears to be now. But let me then uh, revert to the economic part of the story, if I may. You see, uh, for the first few years after the crash, it was a common uh, view uh, in Iceland and in Ireland next door that Iceland was lucky not to be a member of the European Union, lucky or wise, in that uh, uh, we were able to let our currency, you know, uh, uh, depreciate by uh, 50%, uh, creating conditions for this influx of tourists that uh, have uh, helped uh, uh, revamp the economy. Well, this was something that the Irish could not do because they uh, were uh, part of the, uh, of the Eurozone. But now, if you look at what has been happening over the past couple of years, uh, Ireland has made a more impressive, a significantly more impressive economic recovery than Iceland. So the, the argument that Iceland uh, needed to have a flexible exchange rate, uh, a krona that uh, could fall, you know, uh, very significantly, uh, that this was a necessary condition for Iceland's recovery, that looks much less convincing now okay. that we see that Ireland, uh, a member of the euro uh, uh, system, was able to uh, make an even stronger recovery. And I conclude from this, sort of provisionally, that Ireland's access to the European sort of health mechanisms, uh, you know, uh, access to the European Central Bank and so on, did more than compensate uh, for the inability of the Irish to let the Irish pound uh, depreciate, uh, as Ireland could have done, you know, before uh, the advent of the euro. So this is something that needs to be studied uh, uh, quite carefully in view of this uh, evidence that I just uh, described to you. I will just add a, a tiny bit of color to that commentary. Six percent of Iceland's population took to the streets throwing snowballs at politicians. <laughs> I cannot imagine the equivalent of six percent of the population of the United States throwing snowballs at anyone. <laughs> But it, well, I, I'm surprised it was only six percent to a degree. <laughs> the, um, well, I, I I thought the figure had been a bit smaller, but uh, was, uh, uh, but there was a, a broad consensus, you know, yeah. uh, among the people, even if only a small uh, fraction of those who agreed, actually showed up in Parliament Square to uh, to bang their uh, pots and pans, sort of Argentinian style. But another but more they demanded, they, they demanded a cleanup of the central bank. Right. Uh, they got that. They demanded a change of government. They got that. That was sort of an, uh, a, an extra parliamentary change of government that, uh, that we uh, engineered. I participated in, in, in all of these meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the demands that was made by the public uh, in the um, uh, square outside the parliament building was uh, uh, a demand for a new constitution. And uh, uh, the government gave in. 
uh, a constitutional reform process was set in motion. I happened to be uh, involved in that. I was elected to the Constituent Assembly that uh, drafted a, a new post-crash constitution uh, uh, for Iceland, uh, designed, among many other things, to uh, uh, reduce the likelihood of a, of a repeat by sort of uh, uh, use, employing American-style ideas of checks and balances and things like that. Uh, the parliament uh, 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 held a national referendum. Uh, we won it hands down, uh, two to one. Sixty-seven percent of the voters said, uh, yes, we want this constitution. You know what parliament did? It put it on ice. It has refused to ratify it. Yeah. So uh, that is a sign of uh, sort of the, uh, the uh, fraying social capital of Iceland. Uh, 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 parliament has permitted itself, after everything that went on, to try uh, to steal uh, a constitution that has been uh, accepted in a national uh, referendum uh, by failing to ratify it. And uh, fortunately, uh, from my point of view, uh, foreign observers are beginning to notice this. Mm. Iceland has been demoted big time by Freedom House. We used to score uh, you know, a full house. Uh, 100 points, you know, like uh, Sweden and Denmark and Norway, we are down to 95 uh, over the past couple of years. Because those who, uh, who uh, uh, do these reports for Freedom House, they're beginning to notice that things are not the way they are supposed to be in a northern European democracy. But then you also know that uh, your country has been demoted big time by uh, uh, Freedom House, and uh, that is the way it should be. Uh, but we would have liked to, uh, to stay with... Uh, a full house of uh, 100 points in Freedom House, but that was not to be. And uh, that part of my story is closely related to the parts that I uh, told you before. So from an outsider's perspective, you know, one of the more delightful, and I I use that term advisedly in a a crisis like this, uh, uh, outcomes of the political process was the creation of and and subsequent uh, election to power of the pirate party. Yes, and and you have I to do. love a party. I mean, their name actually comes <laughs> from a um, a, uh, a movement in continental Europe to uh, ease the strictures of uh, copyright law. Yeah. So yeah. it's piracy, intellectual piracy. Yeah. But in Iceland, to have a party named Pirates take power. Now, what's interesting about the Pirate Party is they tend to be somewhat populist. And so... Yeah. Uh, and, and but one of their election campaigns was "We are not terrorists," a reflection of Britain's um, use of anti-terrorism laws to recapture some of the lost investment that Iceland did not let leave Iceland. You know, it, 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 as the professor mentioned, it's rather helpful in an economic recovery to not pay off your creditors, yeah. which Iceland did and continues to do. And so Britain responded with the only tool they had, which is a gross misuse of this tool, designating Iceland a terrorist. And a populist party that said, we're not terrorists, was voted no. into office. Again... No, no, uh, no the, the pirates have never uh, been in office. Uh, 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 they, they have been a small uh, opposition party, but, but, a, but a good but, one. But, but I mean, voted into... They, they have seats in the, in the all thing. They've um, seats in parliament, but they've never been uh, in government. I'm, I, I'm sorry. What I meant was they they have a voice in yeah. the in the they, they in the process. Yeah, right. They, they 
they do they do have a strong voice. Yes. And uh, to those who are skeptical of a party that calls itself uh, the Pirate Party, uh, I can only say that uh, the better you get to know the old parties in Iceland, the less inappropriate you think that the name of the Pirate Party is. <laughs> <laughs> We're, you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about Iceland uh, and their uh, involvement in the uh, financial crisis and their recovery as well. Joined here in studio by Philip Nichols uh, of the Wharton School and also by uh, Thor Gilvashan, who is an economics professor at the uh, University of Iceland, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney twenty one. So Thor, where are the strengths of the uh, of the economy in Iceland right now? How strong is it, and does it have the ability to withstand some level of uh, of economic disruption in the future? Uh, the uh, answer to your question is a qualified yes. You see, after the crash, uh, the value of the uh, Icelandic currency, the krona. Uh, it fell by uh, by a half, and uh, that meant that Iceland was suddenly competitive as a tourist destination, something that it had never been before. So tourists started flocking to Iceland. So uh, Iceland has a population of uh, a bit more than three hundred thousand, but we have more than two million tourist arrivals every year. So uh, you know, uh, seven tourists per person uh, per year is an uncommonly high ratio by Icelandic standards. <laughs> And that has meant that uh, tourism has become uh, the most important uh, uh, source of uh, foreign exchange earnings for the economy. So it has uh, basically outstripped uh, the fishing industry that used to be the number one foreign exchange earner and also the energy industry. And that is uh, good news for tourism. One is that, you know, foreign exchange is nice to have to finance your importance on. Uh, but also that uh, uh, the fishing industry uh, tends to be quite concentrated, uh, right. dominated by a few oligarchs who were able to throw their weight about in the political arena and so on, whereas the tourism industry in Iceland, as, it, uh, as in most other countries, is fairly diversified. You know, many uh, small-scale operators whose names you don't know. So we are hoping, some of us, that uh, this diversification of foreign exchange earnings away from the fisheries toward the uh, diversified tourism industry will actually uh, uh, sort of uh, relax a bit uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, overwhelming political uh, uh, power that the uh, oligarchs and the fishing industry have been able to uh, exert on the Icelandic economy uh, uh, for several decades now. And, and you also... So the good news is, therefore, political as well as economic, from my point of view. And you also have the impact from the tech sector as well, Thor, correct? Right. Yes, there, there's a bit of that. Less than... Uh, uh, it, it plays a smaller sort of uh, uh, macroeconomic uh, role in terms of the numbers, uh, but still it is budding, and uh, you know it, uh, it it promises to uh, become quite uh, uh, successful and uh, significantly bigger. But then you know uh, tourists are a bit like fish; they can be fickle, so you can right. never be sure that the uh, uh, current wave of uh, tourists will. Uh, be replaced by another wave, you know, for years to come. There are some who worry that uh, history uh, suggests that uh, tourists come and go, uh, that uh, countries that suddenly become very uh, popular as tourist destinations, uh, they lose their attractiveness and uh, tourists choose to go elsewhere. Uh, But we see no signs of that yet. 
even if Iceland has again become, uh, as it used to be in the past, uh, one of the most expensive tourist uh, destinations in Europe. So many of us are quite surprised by the fact that uh, the currency is now almost as highly valued as it was before the crash 10 years ago, and yet uh, uh, there has only been a modest reduction in the inflow of uh, tourists to the country, which tells us that uh, tourists think about more than just prices. Uh, there seem to be things here that they yeah. want to come and see, you know, no, uh, uh, no matter the cost. Phil, your thoughts? I've had the opportunity to visit Iceland a few times. It's gorgeous. It is brutally expensive, and the tourist infrastructure is minimal, understandably, because the tourist season is so short. Yeah. I, if I were Iceland, and the other factors that led to tourism in Iceland were publicity and access. Uh, Icelandic Air initiated the stopover rule. Wow Airlines uh, became a, a, a low-cost way of getting to Iceland from a lot of interesting places. So there, it's more than just the cheap krona that, that led to tourism boom. And these right. are the same kinds of things that could lead to a decrease in tourism. Whereas the tech industry... Even though it's small compared to the tourism boom right now, right. seems to have a much more solid footing. And there's some really interesting tech coming out of Iceland, which might be where Iceland wants to focus if, if it's looking for a long-term sustainable kind of growth. Thor, I have about a minute left. So uh, let me yeah. have you answer this question to end it. Do you think there are a couple of lessons that, that other countries learned or could learn from either the run-up to the financial crisis in, in Iceland or the post-recovery as well? Yes. Make sure that your recovery uh, concentrates not only on uh, the economic part, but also on the judicial and uh, uh, political part. Uh, I think one needs the two-pronged uh, recovery uh, from a deep crash like the one that was experienced in Iceland. I don't think we would have Brexit. I don't think we would have President Trump if there had been more prosecutions in the U.S. Mm. Phil? I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> Great having you all with us today. Thank you, Thor, for joining us on the phone. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Great seeing you. Thank Always you for down. coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, Thor Gilvason from uh, the University of Iceland, an economics professor there. Philip Nichols, professor of social responsibility in business and professor of legal studies in business here at the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.